Personal log, star date 5373.5. Subjective time. I have returned to the past in an attempt to restore the future. I am home. And I had almost forgotten its beauty. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 5 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Network. I'm your host, the Trekkie known as Siskoid, and today we're talking about Star Trek the Animated Series. And we're doing so with frequent Fire and Water contributor, Aaron Bias. Hi, Aaron. Hey, how you doing, Siskoid? Today we'll be talking about that most forgotten of Star Trek shows, I think, the Animated Series. Is it canon? Isn't it? Is it worth seeing? I think we dare say yes. But Aaron, before we go any further, I'd like to quiz every guest so that people know where they're uh, coming from, who they're dealing with. Uh, are you ready? Sure. So the first question is, the, the larger question is, how did you get into Star Trek? Why is it important to you? Well, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I got into Star Trek, I think my father watched a lot of Star Trek reruns. This was, we didn't have cable uh, television when I was a child. We just had network television. Star Trek was being heavily syndicated throughout the mid-1970s uh, all the way into the late 80s. And uh, something about Star Trek just clicked with me. I don't know if it was the bright colors or the cool spaceships and aliens. I know the aliens really grabbed my attention, um, you know, as a six- and seven-year-old child. And uh, at some point... Uh, an older neighbor kid gave me his Star Trek, his Mego Star Trek, like Enterprise playset and his Mego dolls. That's quite a gift. It was. It was. He, you know, he, he was like 16 or 17 and he didn't care anymore. And he said, do you like Star Trek? I said, yeah. And he gave them to me. So <laughs> those uh, that was that was uh, a great deal of fun. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. As I, as I grew, I think Star Trek was was great as a kid because it was filled with aliens and spaceships and ray guns and different planets and lots of action and color and noise. But as I grew, as I became more sophisticated, I saw more and more of what was in Star Trek. And that changed over time uh, as, as I changed. But uh, it, was, it was interesting because I could come back and watch it and it would mean different things to me at different points in my life. And, uh, you know, you can't say that a lot about it, about a lot of television shows from the 60s and 70s. So I think that's that's where I really got into Star Trek was was realizing that, that there was something more to it than just the the noise and the ships and the hoopla. I know as I became a teenager, you start to relate to different. <laughs> I always said that uh, a mock time was very much like, you know, I, I felt it, it, when I was. When I was like 14, my, my take on a mock time was that whoever had written it remembered what it was like going through puberty. <laughs> um, and then, you know, 
uh, as I got older, you know, you're searching for meaning. And, and, and Star Trek's funny because it, it's seen sometimes as a very counterculture show because it questioned authority. But at the same time, it's also kind of an establishment show in that it respects authority. It questions authority, but Captain Kirk is kind of an authoritarian. He's the guy, he's your dad at the end of the day who comes in and tells you how you screwed up, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's got, it's got, different levels and it appeals to different age groups i think because it's not just a one-dimensional thing yeah, and then different generations got their own show Absolutely. as well and as a new generation will soon i, I imagine mm. uh, with the discovery show if you know if, if it ever off. launches i'm <laughs> yeah, still waiting uh all right so here's the the small survey of all these shows which one is mm. your favorite <sighs> You know, there was a time when I, when I would have said that, say, you know, Next Generation was better written. But looking back with the luxury of having seen all of the current Star Trek shows come and go, I'm gonna have to say my favorite is still the original. It still holds up for me better than some of its uh, sequels. It's where you started, and and that's where I come back every time. <laughs> Which is your favorite character from that show or any show, for that matter? Uh, that's a tough call. Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm gonna have to. I think I'm just gonna have to go back with the default, which is Spock. I, I, I think Spock is really enjoyable, and uh, and he's all over the map in the first season as they try to figure out what Spock is. But uh, he's. <laughs> He's just the most interesting. Sometimes he gets a little Mary Sue as he, you know, develops a new superpower every episode for the convenience of the writers. And I am a very, a very strong proponent of Kirk. And you could even argue that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are all just facets of one psyche. So, you know, it's like they're one character all unto themselves. But while I, while I love Captain Kirk, I gotta go with Spock as my favorite. A lot of people are gravitating towards those, uh, the, the techier, Uh, characters, Les Spock, the Datas, and um, mm -hmm. and of course they were, yeah, the, perhaps the most intriguing uh, in each of their, their shows. There's always a character like that. By being the other, asking the questions that you don't think to ask most of the time. Yeah, and each one had their own its own relationship to humanity. So Spock, Spock rejects humanity or his humanity, and Data mm -hmm. uh, yearns for some semblance of humanity, and then I suppose Deep Space Nine has Odo, who doesn't understand humanity. Desperately tries to impersonate humanity, but he can't even get the nose right. Yeah, that's it. So uh, <laughs> so each show had its own uh, its own version of that. And then finally, which is your favorite alien species? You said you were, as a child, fascinated by them, but... Oh, I gotta go with the Gorn. Oh, the Gorn. I... Uh... Yes, I, I, I'm fascinated by the Gorn. I, I, I probably because they just didn't do anything with them. Um, they made a couple of guest appearances. Uh, you know, our, our, uh, we'll be talking about the animated series. They showed up, I think, twice in the animated series as kind of background characters, and then they're in uh, uh, Enterprise. Enterprise, but, yeah. Uh, slightly, slightly changed, yeah. Um, but. Uh, Yeah, I, 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 there's so much to the Gorn. Maybe, maybe the reason they're so appealing because we just don't know anything about them. Yeah, and they're, they're supposed to have a culture, but you know, when you look at them, they just look like monsters. And they're just a guy in a rubber suit, and it, <laughs> it's kind of perfect for the animated series because the animated series could do that kind of thing. They could, well, animate. I mean, the animation. We'll get into it, but the animation is 
fairly <laughs> stiff. It's, you know, animation yes. of the era. Television animation of the 70s, It's we grew up on it, and it's fairly stiff and repetitive because it's, you know, it's got a very tight budget. But, uh, yes. but the Gorn have a visual that, you know, better relates to animation than, you know, it's easier to do in animation than it is in live action. Let's talk about that, the animated series. If you don't know at home, uh, it was made by Filmation. It, it is comprised of 22 episodes that originally aired between September of 1973 and October of 1974. It featured most of the voices from the original series cast, which, which actually that's like the main draw to it, I think. Mm-hmm. It was written by many of uh, the original series' writers and provided Star Trek with its first Emmy win. Uh, uh, even though Toss was nominated many times, it never won anything. Uh, it is currently out on DVD and on Netflix. So, Aaron, over to you. Why do you like or love the animated series? Uh, it was one of the topics that you submitted to me to, to, to talk about. Uh, so, obviously, you must have a love for it. I do. I do. And uh, I think it's I think it's often neglected by Trek fans. Um, it's, it's overlooked easily and, and easily dismissed. And I think part of the reason is while the stories are, are really fairly sophisticated for early seventies television, children's animation, the, as you said, you know, they have Star Trek writers doing it. They have, uh, science fiction authors doing it. Um, it's, it's, it, it, it's actually got some real thinking behind it. But Filmation as a, an animation house, their draw for, um, most of their clientele, I think, was the fact that they could get it done cheaply and on time. They're not terrible. They're not the worst, but they're below Hanna-Barbera on quality level. And, uh, and I'm not even talking about like 60s Hanna-Barbera where they were still pretty good. The Star Trek cartoons or the animated series, as we're prompted to call it these days. First of all, it was just called Star Trek, just like the TV show. Uh, so it was, you know, kind of, uh, it, in its inception, sort of a continuation. The animation is stiff. There's a lot of people standing still and just their eyes moving or their mouths moving and their eyes moving as they speak. They, uh, it's, it's, it's what's called limited animation. They did their best to reuse the same cells as much as they could. It's not quite as bad as the Marvel superheroes hour no. where, you, where you just saw, you know, pieces of Kirby art sliding into view. <laughs> but, yes. uh, yeah, there is a lot of reuse, which, which is true of, you know, even quality Japanese animation. TV shows mm-hmm. are largely based on, can we repeat these sequences? And Filmation has it down to almost a science at that point because their <laughs> their Star Trek crew have a lot of stock poses that they fall into and they use them for it, it's 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 got kind of a weird rhythm to it that's not unlike the TV show. It's just um, sometimes a scene goes on long enough that it becomes noticeable that everybody just seems to be standing still. Um, but you know, as you say, it's not like just. Uh, like the Marvel, those uh, Gantry Lawrence Marvel productions where they're all just, uh, a, you know, a still photograph of a tracing of a Jack Kirby drawing. And then, you know, maybe suddenly somebody's arm moves. And uh, if you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, these, no it's, these, it's better than that. Yeah, it is better than that. Uh, and it is it is fairly stylized simpler um but uh, you know that stylization i think can turn off some older star trek fans who uh who look at it and go what is this personally i find it charming 
there are some tremendous advantages, as you were hinting at, to moving into animation. You know, on Star Trek, the aliens were, uh, and we see that even as the show has gone on. You know, there are a few exceptions that I think are kind of neat, like the Horda, where you've got a guy crawling around in a big rubber thing. Or, you know, the Gorn is good, but he's, again, bipedal. Yes, um, they're mostly but, humanoids. You know, or colored lights. Colored <laughs> lights a lot is, of, a, lot of is a popular colored one. Lights. <laughs> but but when you get to the the animation, there's no limit on you know basically just whatever you could draw. So uh, I like uh, Lieutenant Eric's the uh, guy with the three arms and the voice by James Doohan and uh, a very squeaky voice from James Doohan. A whole new series of short burst maneuvers has been ordered, sir. And then uh, Uhura's relief off and on. So Mares was. Whew. Not my favorite. Even yeah, even even when I first started seeing the cartoon, I was not thrilled with her. I thought she was kind of hokey. Oh, Enterprise, Lieutenant Mares here. Oh. A lot of a lot of uh, fan illustrations of that character. Yeah, but uh, the uh, the the show, the first time I encountered it, I was two and three when it was on originally in its original run. So I didn't see it as a child, or if I did, I don't remember it. I distinctly remember watching Scooby-Doo a lot, but I don't remember seeing Star Trek on TV as a cartoon. We're about the same age, so. but I've got the extra layer of we didn't start watching television in English until a few years even later than that. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. The first time I became aware of its existence was uh, I was probably seven, six or seven, and I got either for Christmas or my birthday, and my birthday's in December, so it's hard for me to remember which, um, I got a, a give-a-show projector, you know, like a flashlight power projector. It's a projector, and you sl- it had slide strips, like okay. film strips, and you slid them through one panel at a time. And uh, it was assorted cartoons, and it looks like they were primarily Filmation, but Filmation Star Trek in, like, little film strips. And uh, I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was Star Trek, and I knew that it was cartoony because it was drawn instead of being photographs of Star Trek. But my first real encounter with it was when they started showing them on Nickelodeon in the, in the late 80s. Because I, I think I have, a, like, a kind of memory of that kind of thing, but, like, on a Viewmaster you know, Viewmaster may have also had. Yeah, I, like I have like a vague memory of that, which I may have manufactured. But yeah, it seems to me that some of these images existed. I I don't think I ever watched the show itself until, uh, you know, t- like ten years ago. It just mm. wasn't available to me. But um, I say that, and then it's a lot of of filmation. I might have seen it on TV as well because a lot of the filmation stuff kind of looks uh, very similar, and I've always. I uh, can't really accuse them of using the same modeled monsters from one show to the next, mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. I, I can't prove that. But um, <laughs> I, I always had that feeling, you know, that, that the Star Trek show very often has monsters that would fit in a sword and sorcery mm-hmm. kind of program. Uh, and then the, the more alien things sometimes would find their way to other shows. Like Aquaman or, or something. Uh, yeah, those filmation, those filmation superhero cartoons. Uh, there are some where because they sent, they t- they tended to center on aliens. They very seldom actually used supervillains from the DC canon. And uh, and and I think there are a couple of things. I know 
within the animated series, within the, the Star Trek animated series, there are some creatures that seem to be repeated, even though they're completely different creatures on completely different planets. And some of them I do think have appeared in like Aquaman or Superman or one of those things too. It looks like they just reused the character design for the monsters. Like yeah. the, there's a, there's a particular like flying thing that's kind of like a pterodactyl and kind of like a plant has little tentacle things or that I, I swear gets used a lot. Why people should, should give it another look. Why I like it so much is that it is, it is more Star Trek. I mean, when you're done with all the original episodes of Star Trek, before you go and crack open the movies, you still have like a season and a half of cartoon episodes of Star Trek. Some of them are, are, are definitely worth taking a look at. Definitely. And, uh, and for fans of the original show, there are a lot of callbacks. Uh, you know, sequels to episodes mm-hmm. that we've uh, that we've grown to love. Uh, some are not great. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> well, I'm. There's a Tribble episode, right? Yes. Uh, more trouble, more tribbles, whatever it's called. Uh, I think that's it. Yes. Yeah, and it's so the same with Koloth and Cyrano Jones, and they're it's the same setup except they've got a creature that eats. Uh, tribbles. We get more into the ecology of the tribble. Uh, why tribbles don't overrun the galaxy already? And uh, but otherwise, it's the same story. And I and I've been, I've gone on record before as saying that I think the trouble with tribbles, that original episode is rather overrated. So it's not my favorite <laughs> of the original series by any means. Mm-hmm. So the the repeat is. Kind of too much of the same story to, to be valuable to me. It's odd. Um, it is very similar, like structurally similar. It does have one other twist to it, it is that uh, Jones has genetically modified the Tribbles, I think. Uh, is it Jones that did it? Somebody's genetically modified the Tribbles instead of reproducing ad nauseum once they've eaten more than they should. Now they just get big until they're oh, yeah, the yeah. size of like giant beanbag chairs. <laughs> Right, you get your large tribbles. And they're pink, which... Yeah, the colors are a bit... Um, one of the main dudes at, at Filmation in the 60s and early 70s. The rumor is that he was colorblind, and that he just went by the labels on the paint. Oh, wow. Which, you know, that's that's what some some people have said. I mean, I've heard that he's colorblind, and I don't I don't doubt that, but I've, I've heard that given as an explanation for why the colors on Star Trek are so weird. But I'm not sure what the if that's actually true. Yeah. So or they, if they, it's just they for kind of a, a mod look. <laughs> yeah. The brown tribbles become pink, but they're all pink. And I mean, the original tribbles had very had different colors, so it's just a way to make it simpler to animate and draw in the cell because. Well, there's that, but in the same episode, if you look at Koloth, or uh, yeah, his his uniform is kind of pink and purple. Yeah. 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 The which uh, is odd. The Klingon <laughs> uniform is pink in, on the show. <laughs> Sir. Yes. Don't do that again. Ever. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see uh, who else do we see? We see um, uh, Harry Mud. Harry Mud gets another yes. episode. Mm-hmm. Mud's passion. The shore leave planet. We get actually yes. get inside the machinery of it. Uh, uh, Once upon a planet is the is the episode with the reprise of the shore leave planet. We do go back and explore that world a little bit more, and very often with the original writer of the episode. Mm-hmm. So it was David Gerald who did the that second triple episode and all that. Uh, but the best, I think, is 
for me, uh, the episode Yesteryear. Yes. It's, it's the one where they go back to the Guardian of Forever, and we see that the Enterprise crew apparently uh, un- not traumatized by, by the events of the city on the edge of forever <laughs> uh, go back to the <laughs> Cosmic Donut and uh, explore history willy-nilly. And in this story, when they return, mm-hmm. nobody remembers Spock. You know, Kirk and Spock come back, right. and nobody knows who Spock is. There's a different first officer on the bridge, an Endorian instead. And so Kirk and – well, not Kirk, but Spock goes back in time uh, to fix history because apparently – and this is – it's a wonky little uh, – the paradox, I'm not sure how much it makes sense. But the uh, the conceit is that because he went through history with Kirk to, to watch uh, whatever events – he did not instead go back to his own childhood on Vulcan, where he remembers himself as his older cousin that he'd never met before, um, you know, uh, take part in events. So somehow Spock either, well, Spock dies at age seven in that other timeline, so nobody knows who he is. He goes back in time to Vulcan and uh, saves himself, but also changes changes even his own memories and his own history uh, in the past. Uh, have I explained maybe. it well? I, yeah, maybe. No, you have explained it well. You have explained it well. If, if there's anything that doesn't hold up in the explanation, it's not your not your fault. It's the, the weird time travel paradox problems that don't quite... I, I don't understand how if he was in the past, uh, in the Guardian of Forever, how his being out of the timeline stopped him from doing something in his own past. That's where it gets very wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, yeah. just messed up. But brushing over that, as as you want to do with time travel stories, um, <laughs> where time travel is not necessarily the core of the story. <laughs> no. It's um, not like this is the worst. Time travel episode on Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, no, it's, it, it is a wonderful episode uh, written by Dorothy Fontana. She goes to expand on things that were suggested in Journey to Babel. Um, she explores Spock, Spock's relationship, Spock's complicated relationship with his father. They actually got Mark Leonard to come in and guest yeah. voice Sarek. Uh, they had to go ahead and use um, Majel Barrett as, as uh, Spock's mother, Amanda. But, you know, hey, you can't get everything. Um, yeah. Her and uh, James Duen do, did a lot of the secondary voices. Absolutely. And so did Michelle Nichols and um, mm-hmm. George Takai. You, you can actually, you know, they're not voice actors in the sense that you can, that they can change their voice that much. <laughs> no. You, you recognize their, their stamp all over the place. But Duen, Duen came from... Canadian radio, I think. So he probably had the most experience of all of them with trying to do different different voices. But he's good with accents. That's what he does. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 phenomenal, phenomenal with it. Well, the thing, I mean, it's it's great. They expand on the idea of uh, Spock's pet Salot uh, that uh, they talk about. You actually get to see him. It's a very you know, for a cartoon aimed at children, you know, what other cartoon were you going to tune into in the 1970s and see a story where a little boy has to make the decision to euthanize his pet to spare it from suffering? That's heavy stuff for a little kid. Yeah, Even, even the father-son relationship in this is, since it's a mirror of 
the adult relationship that we know about mm-hmm. is very mature as far as as a story goes as mm-hmm. you know it's not a cartoon where the dad is no the, the dad is a stern uh he's disappointed in his son or he's ready to be disappointed in his son to fail once is not a disgrace for others if you fail there will be those who will call you a coward all your life i do not expect you to fail it's very heavy. Yeah, you know, you've got a child who, because he is, regardless of his his circumstance or his cultural choices, he's still a half. He's still half human, and so he craves. He 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 needs emotional reinforcement. He needs affection that he is denied because that would be distasteful. It's not his father's way. And so his father's not only distant. He's not like just a distant human parent. He's like that to the 10th power. And right. uh, it, it is kind of gut-wrenching to watch that when you see see it portrayed as a father-son relationship with a child. It's, it's, it's uh, a little – a little more angsty even than like when you see it when they're both adults on the TV show. There, there's something, let's call it metaphorical uh, in this relationship or, you know, it's a heightened version of it where the father is distant, but uh, the mother is very human. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got that, like in the world of a child, the, mm-hmm. the distant father and the warm mother is very is very often how the child perceives his two parents in or you know in in a traditional family unit and at least um, I think that's how I was raised as, as well. I, I, you know I think families are shifting or becoming very different today. But uh, mm-hmm. child of the seventies, as mm-hmm. we were, uh, that was I think the the normal. Uh, except right. here it's you know it's even more the contrast is even more powerful and we've got the small kid spock is <laughs> having trouble you know do, doing the nerve pinch and so he had these you know because of his half humanity when we see him in the, the original series and in the movies he's uh, he's very competent and superhuman mm-hmm. but here we see mm-hmm. him at a younger age when he was struggling because he was not a full vulcan and that's an interesting wrinkle as well and they you know there's a, that bit where he's being bullied by the other kids and that's more or less mm-hmm. something they've reprised in the uh, in the new Star Trek films. You know, we, we do Absolutely. see that with that is, uh, that is directly. <laughs> they, they, yeah, they just poached it um. from yesteryear. Earther, barbarian, emotional Earther. You're a Tyrant, Spock. You could never be a true Vulcan. That is not true. My father, your father brought Shane to Vulcan. He married a human. And uh, also poached from yesteryear on Enterprise, the episode where a CGI model completely poached from the the like uh, establishing shot of Spock's hometown on the cartoon. Yeah, they also inserted that in the uh, uh, the you know the, the the whatever the special editions of the. TOS episodes, oh, yes. uh, where, where they redid the. I can't stand to watch those, but <laughs> they just seem they look wrong to me. I I hate HD so much, uh, but I, I just I can't stand it, especially when the original material was not in HD. It mm-hmm. just looks so fake to me. But uh, but yeah, they also use that model of the town in a mock time. So when we go to Vulcan, it all matches uh, right. after a while. And but the original image comes from this. Yes. Yes, uh, there there are quite a few things that that actually originate there, and and you know, and you have this story. This story, even as far as canonicity goes, that's one of the other sticking points for the cartoon. Is 
Paramount didn't fully own the rights for a while, and they kind of decided based on that as much as anything else, but also because they had Next Generation and they were trying a much more, as they felt, you know, kind of adult take on Star Trek. They just kind of brushed this aside and said, this isn't canon anymore. But even even at that point, they kind of grudgingly allowed yesteryear as being real, which I thought was was interesting. It's it, it holds up that well that even even when you want to say this doesn't count, people will still say, well, except for that one where, <laughs> where Spock goes back in time to save himself as a child. Yeah, but I did look over each of the episodes uh, quickly and try to find where act, things were actually established on the cartoon and probably were established mm-hmm. in the series Bible uh, and then used by the cartoon. Things that mm-hmm. we today believe to be true of Star Trek. For example, uh, <laughs> James Tiberius Kirk. Absolutely. Tiberius, Absolutely. yeah. Tiberius. First utterance of the name, yeah. Yeah, the first the first time in let's say uh, live action that he that it's said is in Star Trek VI that we reveal what the T stands for, but it actually came up on the cartoon show uh, first. So you've got that. You've got uh, McCoy's daughter, who was supposed to be written in the Way to Eden, that the hippie episode, the space hippie oh, yes. episode. Uh, mm-hmm. she, she's confirmed. Her existence is confirmed on the uh, on the cartoon show. Spock's mom, her last name Grayson, is first established on the cartoon show as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to all the other stuff uh, that that you know that yesteryear does with Vulcan, uh, it's got Captain Robert April in it, which yes. is the, the Starfleet captain that commanded the Enterprise before Captain Pike. Uh, and that is very often shown in, um, in Star Trek books as being Gene Roddenberry. There's, there's a picture of Gene Roddenberry with the Star Trek uh, shirt, gold shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people say, point to that and say that's uh, Robert April. But he does appear, he has like a full role uh, in one of the, well, the very last episode. Mm-hmm. The Counterclock Incident. So we've got that. Uh, it's got the first holodeck. Yes. Yes, the first the first appearance of a holodeck is uh, it's it's a it's an embryonic holodeck. No, I think it has like a treadmill floor or something, but it's uh, absolutely makes its first appearance on. Yeah, it's a the bit more show. a bit more practical uh, looking mm-hmm. than the um, than what we get in, in next gen, but it's a precursor to that. So, and the uh, the counterclock incident also has a lot of. Well, it raises a lot more questions than it answers, but uh, <laughs> the idea of the the transporter as being kind of the be-all, end-all of fixing things, you know, I mean, if – first of all, it's kind of crazy that the Aprils say, no, 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 we want to be old. But, you know, <laughs> that's up to them, you know. But if you think about it, you know, it raises questions that get – Kind of, it, it, it's you see it again and again on Next Generation, and then it's always glossed over too. It's kind yeah. of a what? What can't? Why is there? Is there really anything you couldn't fix by just running somebody back to their last save pattern? Apparently, and Voyager used that as a fix as well. Uh, and the cartoon didn't even start with a Counterclock Incident. Isn't even the first instance of it on the animated series because mm-hmm. one of the few episodes I watched coming up to this was the Lorelei signal. Oh yeah, <laughs> and in in that, which uh, a plot that's been reused by Voyager as several of these plots 
Um, whenever the, the plot is, is kind of insane and you're going, well, this is very much a cartoon plot with nonsense physics, Voyager's mm. going to try to do it. Uh, it is really the lesson. <laughs> but in the Lorelei signal, you've got these space sirens who call up all the men and the men go down to the planet, uh, and are enchanted, uh, by the sirens and grow old. There's life energy is being sucked out. And that's right. Yeah, I, I wanted to watch the episode because uh, it's the one where Uhura takes command, and uh, you know she's one of my favorite characters, mm-hmm. uh, and I sort of wanted to see that again. Ship's log, supplemental. Lieutenant Uhura recording. Due to Chief Engineering Officer Scott's euphoric state of mind, I am assuming command of the Enterprise. I accept full responsibility for my action. A detailed account will be recorded later. Nurse Chapel. Until further notice, you will act as chief medical officer. Yes, Lieutenant. Uh, we're, you know, it's her in chapel and a, a all-woman security team, and you know, it's fun. But the uh, the men all get shriveled up, and they use the transporter to fix themselves. <laughs> of course. Which makes you wonder why they didn't use the transporter to fix themselves, uh, you know, a hundred times on the TV show to begin with. Well, it's always very risky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hmm. But yeah, so so they use yeah no, but it's it's you know it's one of these things that has been uh, used very often on the show since, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether the writers remembered it from the animated series or not. This show could show aliens better, uh, more alien you know more alien organisms, more alien planets really and environments and ships because they weren't based on models. We actually see the uh, Orion ships. Yes. Yeah, which just looks, they just look like stars on the show. There's just like a, a special effect uh, on the, uh, on the I'm, live I'm, action series. I am not a fan of the animated series Orion ships though. I have to or, say, I don't, I don't care for that design. Or the Orions as yes. the animated series keeps calling them. The Orions. <laughs> the Orions. Sounds like they came from a, a planet of cookies. Uh, but yeah no you don't no I don't like those the design on it is a lot of times it's really cool and yes you do get to see a lot of non-human aliens but uh, those ships I don't know they just bug me I, I, I don't have it's 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 purely object purely subjective. It's not it's not like for any real reason. I just never cared for those. They're very I do fan- like the little fantasy-ish. You know, yeah, they're the, a little the, little too Flash Gordon-y. I don't know. Yeah. I like the robot freighters they designed that appear in two or three episodes, and then they retrofitted those to that uh, that uh, HD edit of uh, of Star Trek that you hate so much. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can't say I hate it because I don't. I can't watch it. <laughs> so I haven't even seen every every uh, HD version of every episode. Or... They use that design to do the Antares in Charlie X, and uh, and I thought that worked pretty well. Uh, I'm with you. I was kind of vehemently against them doing what they did, but that's how they showed them on Netflix, and so I started watching them. And I don't mind most of the time. There are some things that just bug me, like when they get into super big, like animated things with the ship on the HD edit of the original series. I find that irritating. But when they just use it to, like, throw in an establishing shot that's different or clean something up, I don't mind. 
I kind of came to grips with it because I realized the whole reason they were doing it was so they could put the show in high definition and not have it look like people were holding wet cardboard. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of that kind of revisionist editing. But there's, there's light years of difference between what they did to Star Trek, the original series, and what George Lucas did to the Star Wars saga, so <laughs> I can live with it. Yeah. It's not so much the insert shots, the CG insert shots that bug me. It's the the vibrancy of the, the, the colors and the crispness of the image on nah. on the, the, the actual actors. It's To me, it looks so... I, I don't know. It's, it's wrong to my eye. Um, <laughs> but, you, but I'm the guy that puts in, you know, like the, the red, white, and uh, yellow pin uh, through machines that could work with HDMI, but I, I don't want to see the crisp image. So, I, you know, I, I actually make my DVDs look shittier. It's a, it's a strange taste. But, the, the yeah, the Orions actually, it's the first time we see them. Uh, we, the first time we see the, uh, uh, the their ships look like something other than, than those stars on uh, Super Friends. Yes. Um, so uh, we see, like you know, they, they we go underwater on a, a certain episode. Uh, we see like uh, Star Trek uh, watercraft, Starfleet watercraft, uh, life belts that allow people to walk around in space. So the show does add things that we never really see again. Right. Uh, but also things that we did see again. Enterprise did a show where uh, you the, the the crew went inside the nacelle with that. That was first done on the um, on the animated series as well. Those those life belts, I think they're interesting because on the one hand, well, they're they're for a practical reason. You know, we had environmental suits on the show, and right. those are really cool looking environmental suits. But this cartoon, the stylization and the limitedness of the production. It's 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 not that they saved money by redraw by not redrawing it because they had to make new cells where everybody was wearing life belts and had that little shimmer around them. It's I think it's just to keep the children from being confused as to what character was what if they were all wearing spacesuits. But uh, but yeah, the life belts are kind of uh, they always feel kind of hacky to me. But I don't mind them. They just they're they're very much of the cartoon. One of the very weird things uh, about uh, a certain episode, uh, the slaver weapon. By Larry Niven. Yes. That's, I mean, Star Trek's had a lot of legit science fiction novelists work on scripts in the original series and on the animated series. But this was Larry Niven's first uh, foray into Star Trek. And what he actually did was write one of his known space stories with aliens that he himself owns rather than Star Trek aliens and then put, you know, Starfleet characters in it. It, it's so strange. <laughs> so the, the only time you see the the Xinti or however you say it, uh, the, the the Zin, yeah, the, yeah the, like the Man Zin War, which is like a, it's mm-hmm. a Larry Niven classic, happened in the Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently, apparently, apparently. So, what did you think Don't of that they, one? I thought that was I thought that was very entertaining. For what it is, it's not my favorite episode. I love the guest appearance of some of, of Larry Niven aliens, and and like using using the man's in war as like a, a backdrop. It it feels natural enough, except that if you really get into it, you know Niven's got his own his whole own history of the you know human expansion into space that doesn't jive with Star Trek. But uh, I 
am, am I wrong? Do I, am I thinking, did Niven, I know he created the Zen and the, the puppeteers and all that stuff. Did he, yep. did he make them like, he owns them, but didn't he give people authorization to like borrow them for their own stuff or something? I'm thinking that happened, but I could be dreaming. You mean not just for Star Trek, but anyone yeah. who wants to use them? Right, right. That's a, that's an interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll certainly check and. Um, I, I should have looked that up. I was thinking about that as we were getting started, and I couldn't remember if that's true or if I made that up. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a little research and then insert it in the uh, incoming transmissions uh, that come at the end of the show. So I'll, I'll either deny or confirm that information. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's interesting because. I mean, he is, of course, he wrote this one, but mm. uh, it's still him letting them borrow his stuff. It's, you know, yeah. Um, because how confusing would these, would the copyright be to this? Right. Right. And, and wouldn't that complicate things even further when you're trying to do things like get it released on DVD? You know, that yeah. took a long time to get that released on DVD. And not because of the Larry Niven thing, as far as we know. No. No, I think it had more to do with yeah the rights between Filmation and whoever bought Filmation and Paramount and yeah because I think Filmation belongs to Time Warner now so I think they had to work that out. It's kind of like the the release rights that took so long for um, the '60s Batman TV show because Fox right. owned all the rights to the show even though Warner owned the characters and the Xinti did return in the Star Trek comic strip. So, uh, (laughs) all right, it's, you know, it's a confusing thing, but there's a lot of weird things, uh, in the filmation cartoon. It's not Mm -hmm. all, oh, this, this should belong to canon that, Mm -hmm. you know, this, this should be something they remember. And sometimes the the characters will say, uh, we've been together five years. And so you can, you can see it's still the same five year missions, like the, the, the two years we missed. So, okay, it's canon, and then you have, you know, the giant Vulcan clone of Spock <laughs> story. Oh, uh, the infinite Vulcan. Yes. That's the one. Where, where Written- there's a 50-foot clone of Mr. Spock. They apparently cloned his uniform. As well, that's convenient. That that one was written yes. by Walter Koenig, who, who does not take part in the show. Otherwise, he's the one character that's not one, the one actor that's not bringing back his voice. Uh, Chekhov is not in the show. No, no, and and it's funny because uh, I I understand that they had to uh, push really hard um, to get Nichelle Nichols and George Takei in. Uh, they wanted to do it, I think, without them. And, uh, and I, Shatner even participated in like, you know, lobbying to get them, you know, kind of, it's either them or not. But Which for some reason they, today. yeah, but they drew the line. They drew <laughs> yeah. the line at Chekhov. No Chekhov. Oh, you know, um, I wanted to mention this. Shatner in this, yeah. the, the, the voice acting on this, it, like you mentioned, none of these guys were really voice actors by trade. But they're all actors. One of the critiques here about this show is that they don't seem to be interacting with each other very well. And part of it is that when they did this show, even though Shatner agreed to do it, he was touring like with a stage company for most of this. And so he would get a tape recorder and record his lines 
on the road in between shows. And so that's why, like, sometimes it sounds kind of unnatural when he's having a conversation with Bones or Spock or Bones and Spock or whatever. It's because he's not even anywhere near the recording session with the other people. And uh, I think it adds, I think it, well, it doesn't really add. It kind of takes away some nuance from it that you might have gotten if he'd been in the studio with the others. No, definitely. There's there's a lot of air between, <laughs> between lines. Uh, you know, they're they're really editing the lines in one by one uh, on this thing. It's not no nobody speaks one on top of the other really. It's one of the absurdities, I suppose, of like that and the stiffness and the um, and the the sort of D and D plots <laughs> from time to time because like the giant, the, you know, the giant uh, clone of Spock. It's uh-huh. feels a lot like Spock's brain that episode. You know, that kind yes. of the, the the actual show did really stupid things as well. Mm-hmm. That's not, uh, you know, that's not excluded. But uh, my favorite, as far as ridiculous moments or uh. ridiculous episodes, is the one I call Satan's Planet. That's not the actual name. The Magics oh, yes. of uh, Megas Two, or yes. uh, where uh, it's the same setup as Who Mourns for Adonais, where they mm-hmm. meet Apollo and who appears to be the inspiration for the Greek gods, right. or. Um, or the cartoon show has another one that's uh, sharper than the serpent's tooth, which in which they meet. I think that's the one in, in which they mm-hmm. meet an Aztec god and who inspired you know the Aztecs on Earth. Right. And this is a planet of you know it's Kirk talking to Satan on a planet right. in a cartoon show. You know where right. the inspiration for demons uh, and devils is is a planet in the center of the galaxy, uh, and he and Spock. Learn how to use magic. There's like magic battles in this. <laughs> so that's, that's my absolute yes. most ridiculous uh, animated series plot. To isolate someone like Lucian, that's the same as sentencing him to death. Do you realize who you defend? He has told you his name is Lucian. Would you defend him still if you knew he had another name too? The Rollicker, the Tempter, Lucifer. Interested in legend. He's a living being, an intelligent life form. That's all we have to know about him. The thing is, and, and I'm not going to go out of my way to play devil's advocate here, no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, but the whole that episode is interesting, though, in terms of you know Harry Pottering it up. Although that's how they portray it. I think the idea is that they've you know they're they're following the rules of this like part of space, manipulating things the way the the natives manipulated. Uh, I think it's hokey that they go out of their way to have this like connection to the Salem witch trials in there, as <laughs> if they were all being driven away. The Salem witch trials cracks me up. It doesn't crack me up. It's a horrible tragedy. <laughs> but what I'm saying is it cracks me up when the Salem witch trials is invoked as some kind of like affront to actual witches or, or pagans or people who were killed at the Salem witch trials well none of them were witches they were all Puritans that's really kind of odd so it's not like real witches were being burned or or hanged in the Salem witch trials but the thing about the magics in Vegas too is uh, once again we're looking at a Saturday morning kids show and it's calling into question you know do you really know who the devil is is he really the devil is he as bad as you heard and you know and it's a but question, it, 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 here it is, like, you know, small children are watching this eating their cereal, and here's a show telling them that that the devil may not be the guy you thought he was. And if the devil's not the guy you thought he was, then what else isn't real? Or what else isn't right about everything you've learned so far? 
Um, and so on the one hand, yay, you know, it's teaching you to think. On the other hand, man, how did they get this past sensors? Yeah. But then, uh, the, 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 how sharper than a serpent's tooth. It seems to me like a much weaker version of Who Mourns for Adonai. It is very heavily, you know, when Who Mourns came out, that was, you know, the mid sixties. By the time this show comes out, we've already had Eric Von Daniken cranking out chariots of the gods. And, uh, it is just all over this episode. That episode is so very. It, it, I I I actually like you know expect um, that Sukalakis guy to hold this episode up as evidence of uh, alien intervention at some point on ancient yeah, aliens. <laughs> it was super trendy uh, by that point to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, oddly to me is that that's the episode that was submitted for the Emmy. And so when Star Trek. <laughs> The anime series won an Emmy. It was for that one. Uh, in my mind, it, you know, it's yesteryear. I, it'll always be yesteryear yeah. in my mind that should that would have won an Emmy for Star Trek. But no, it's it's this. It, it's not one of the better episodes, honestly. It's, in, in it's just opinion. okay. It's just okay, but it's a retread of a story we've already seen, mm-hmm. uh, and more than once. Even at that point, uh, or it was about time Star Trek won something. You know, it was part of popular culture and <laughs> <laughs> something like that. But yeah, that's the episode that won the Emmy, technically. And then there's also one where uh, the the crew gets shrunken down, which is always a silly trope. But uh, then Deep Space Nine <laughs> did it, so. <laughs> uh, um, hmm, Deep Space Nine, the most adult of the shows, in my opinion, and mm-hmm. uh, it did the shrunken runabout story. So. I've got to give that one a pass, I suppose. <laughs> they, they ripped off Land of the Giants. Well, you, you always do that episode where people get – and it's one of my favorite things. I mean, I love shrinking superheroes as well. It's just, <laughs> just – I, you know, I love people interacting with – and Doctor Who had done it as well, mm-hmm. Planet, Planet of Giants. And, and there's a lot of – because my two loves are Doctor Who and Star Trek. I always look for similarities and differences between them. Right. Uh, and so even that thing where Kirk and Spock are casting magic spells, there mm-hmm. is a Doctor Who novel that does exactly this and explains it with you know, nanites in the air, and uh, you can tap <laughs> into it with your mind. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not explained on the animated series, but no. we can say that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. For it to work, to win the Nobel Prize. Do you have a particular silly moment that you wanted to, well, to mention? Well, I mean, you know, apart from Giant Spock, that one is tremendously silly. That one, you know, the thing with the with the giant Vulcan thing, it, 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 that is preposterous, and I never have understood why this Caniculus, whatever the guy who invented the cloning process that did it, felt that he had to make giant clones. It's never explained. <laughs> but I do like those aliens, the Philosians, the plant people that are in it. I, th- I always thought they were kind of a cool design for the cartoon. Plant life of extraordinary intelligence and technology. That's true. There's a lot of the breath of imagination on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, is still something that that makes it interesting to watch today. There's the one where they're all put in a zoo, and the um, which is a very Twilight Zone plot. But the uh, the aliens that are Taking care of them in the zoo are those big slug-looking things with like an elephant trunk. That's kind of cool. But oh, on on sheer goofiness. Okay, this is this is something where I got one video cassette once as a birthday gift of this cartoon before it came out on DVD. And uh, one of the two episodes it had on it was Bem. 
Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who wrote BEM. Was that David Gerald? That makes sense. It, yeah, it, it was. Be- BEM, of course, is, BEM, of course, is an acronym for bug-eyed monster. Um, but yeah, that's just given as the character's name in the show. He's an ambassador yeah. from a member, or a, I think they're a group that's petitioning for membership in the Federation. And he's not bug-eyed. No, he's not bug-eyed. <laughs> he's but not they, bug-eyed. They, 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 uh, he, he has a secret, which is that he comes apart. Like the comic right. book character Mr. Jigsaw, you know, he like yeah. just comes apart in sections. But arm fall off boy, or um, one of the Captain Marvels. Right. And when they're yeah, that one. Uh, when they're when they're uh, describing him though, Mr. Spock delivers the line. Apparently, Bim is a colony creature. No, <laughs> no, he's not, because a colony creature would be like a coral reef. Where you have a bunch of separate individuals, yes, yeah, separate individuals who bond together and and form a larger organism, a, a co, you know, like a symbiotic giant organism made up of individual organisms. Bem is a pair of legs and a torso and a head that float around in the air, and uh, and maybe some arms, and yeah, it just it, it, that would make no sense for him to be a colony creature. It, it makes me wonder, you know. Are his species interchangeable, a la micronauts? Do they do they swap around? Is that a thing? Is that a thing they only do at naughty parties? I don't know. I don't understand how this is supposed to work. The weird little arms that come out of his pelvis, though, when he like steals their communicators, creep me out to this day. <laughs> oh, Bim. <laughs> uh, there's a practical joker in there. There's, yeah, oh, there's the practical joker. Yeah. Where we where we that, have to wonder that one's is pretty the, silly. Is the Enterprise sentient? <laughs> it, it apparently has opinions. I don't. <laughs> it's, it's a comedy episode, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, and, but yeah, it's you know Kirk's walking around with Kirk is a jerk written on his back, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, so the show had a sense of humor about itself. Well, I'll give it that. It was talking to a younger audience, and its sense of humor was perhaps a little juvenile at times. Absolutely. Uh, you said at the top of the show, charming is is what it is today. I think. Yes, I think I think some of the episodes can be taken very seriously. I think most of the episodes can be enjoyed, and it's interesting watching them as an adult to see all the kind of adult, like I mean, not like you know, super. Whatever, but it's stuff that would have gone over most kids' heads, but it's, there's a lot of subtext to it that's like kind of mature, both in topic and in like, you know, its treatment of like human interactions that you certainly wouldn't have seen on, say, Clue Club or Hong Kong Fooey. Right, no, for sure. And the central friendship between the three men mm-hmm. that we came to love on the live action show mm-hmm. is present here, and they do have moments, uh, you know, trying to desperately trying to save Spock's life, for example, and uh, taking risks because you know he is their friend. It's which is something that became a central part of the Star Trek films uh, for sure. Was also in this, so they're you know the actors are playing the same characters and get to have the same. Uh, kind of interaction between them, and sometimes, sometimes there's an emotional center to that. And the ancillary characters that were sort of forgotten in the later seasons of the live action series, Uhura and uh, Sulu, get a little more to do, really, yep. in, in the cartoon series. They actually bring back Mr. Kyle on the cartoon, but to distinguish him from Scotty, since Scotty's doing his voice, they give him a giant handlebar mustache. 
But he is bearded by the time we get to the movies, isn't he? So <laughs> that's like the transition. But he looks nothing. He looks, looks nothing <laughs> like Mr. Kyle. No, no, that character looks nothing like Mr. Kyle. Uh, sadly, there's no animated Mr. Leslie like hanging around at that one little uh, engineering uh, security station to die every other week. Yeah, but we can't get everyone. Still, the show <laughs> lasted uh, a bit longer than uh, as, in terms of seasons, mm-hmm. longer than most filmation cartoons did. So most film- filmation yes. cartoons lasted a single season, mm-hmm. and this got one and a little more. This was before the Nielsen ratings looked at disposable income among the audiences. The, uh, the the demographic groups, and so they spent absolutely as little money as possible on animated television shows for children. Star Trek, I think, was one of the more expensive shows Filmation had made up to that point. Uh, they were paying for all those actors. Yeah, yeah, they had to pay for all those voice actors. Um, Filmation would about ten years, less than ten years later, I think, hit. Uh, a high note when they started doing Tarzan and Flash Gordon, and they started incorporating a lot of rotoscoping, which gave sort of a realistic movement to the the principal characters. Um, I would have loved to have seen them do Star Trek when they were, you know, at that point of uh, of their craft. But uh, what we got is still, you know, a filmation tour de force. Although you will hear that music, that filmation. Incidental music that you will hear over and over again in in Star Trek, in Tarzan, in Flash Gordon, even up to He-Man. That kind of a da 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 Yeah, but but just repeats over and over again, especially in running segments. Anytime somebody's having an action segment where they're running over a large turf, that that music plays, and it's in so many filmation cartoons. It's almost as familiar as that big spinny circle that says uh, Lou Scheimer, Norm Prescott. I guess they didn't have access to the uh, original series music. <laughs> You know, to do the like the fight music and the uh, the Kirk uh, love theme, or because they don't, they don't even use uh, the uh, the normal Star Trek theme. It's got its own Star Trek theme at yep. the beginning. Yep, uh, new instrumentation, a new arrangement. It's still the same basic thing, but it, it sounds yeah, kind of. And he does the uh, space, the final frontier, and all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the mm-hmm. when it launches into the the, the theme proper, right. um, suddenly it's a different melody. Whoa, <laughs> what's that? Yeah. What's what's this? Yeah, okay. It's a little bubblier. It's a little happier. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Yeah, so any final thoughts on uh, Star Trek The Animated Series? Because people can see this. It's You don't even need to own uh, any DVDs or whatever. It's on Netflix, which is the people's favorite it, streaming delivery service. It might be on Hulu, too. I know the other shows were on Hulu. I'm not sure, though. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you haven't watched it, 
sit down and watch it. If you have watched it, open your mind back up and sit down and watch it. it, it, it pick pick around, you know, uh, watch watch one. If it's not working for you, switch to a different episode. But yeah, I think you'll enjoy Yesteryear. And there are a lot of fun little sequels. More Tribbles, More Troubles is not one of them. But uh, the the show in general is is well written, and uh, and if you can get past the stylization of the characters, uh, I think you'll find a lot to love. All right. It's definitely primitive, you know, compared to some of the things we see now. But that's true of any older television. I mean, that's part of the that's part of the fun and the charm. I wouldn't be watching the the original series either if I. Uh, somehow disliked older methods of making television shows. Right. Right. So it's the same. It's the same idea. Uh, it's not something I think you can chug through no, easily. No. Don't don't sit down to watch all 22 in one go. You might get discouraged, you know, because at 22 minutes of running time, it's like the original show. Except you lose a lot of the character moments, I think. If anybody out there is kicking back and watching it on Netflix, I can't remember the name of the first one. It's uh, like Beyond the Farthest Star, maybe? Um, yeah, that's it. Skip that yeah. one. Beyond it, the Farthest Star. It is a snore. It is a it is a, a snore fest. You will think, this is only 22 minutes? Go ahead and <laughs> jump straight ahead to the second episode, which is Yesteryear. And then, you know, you can watch Beyond the Farthest Star. I'm not saying never watch it, but if you start there... And you're already like, you know, questioning doing this. Don't watch that episode yeah, at first because it is it is a tough one. It's a turn off. Mm-hmm. You know, if you start with that one, you'll think it's not a good example of it. No, no, it is a very slow episode. Yeah, because I just I watched it to, to do this. <laughs> uh, who? It's uh, it's a slog. It's got nice visuals. You know what? It's, it's a, the motion picture of the animated series. It's as dry as leftover turkey. <laughs> It's got nice visuals, but it's slow as hell. And that's it for me, and uh, I, I appreciate you having me on. Well, always glad to. I think we, we're probably going to repeat guests over time because uh, the, the bigger Trekkies are the ones that you know sent me messages right away when we called for submissions, and you were one of those, <laughs> definitely. Uh, this wasn't the only topic you pitched. It's just the one that we wanted to – I think I wanted to touch as many of the shows, of the different shows as possible in the opening a salvo of episodes and uh the animated series is definitely one of the ones that people forget about absolutely know. if uh people want to hear more from aaron bias on the internet is it possible well uh i have several defunct blogs that you can check out um other than that i don't have an active internet presence at the moment i'm working on something but i haven't been to the stage where i want to discuss it publicly yet um, you can find me on Facebook, but I've taken a Facebook hiatus lately. I check in maybe once a day now. Um, it was just getting ugly after uh, <laughs> after the election, and I decided uh, I was I was just going to step back and try to breathe in the real world rather than the uh, heightened reality of the uh, the virtual uh, social media world for a while. I'll be back, but right now I'm uh, I'm on there a couple of times, you know, maybe three or four times a week. So feel free to reach out to me through Facebook. I'm just 
Aaron Bias. Um, you'll probably not have too much trouble finding me because I'm friends with most of the Fire and Water Network guys. Um, yeah, and you'll yeah. probably be featured on uh, new episodes of Things uh, over 2017, right? I'm sure. Uh, I still have one of the film and waters that Rob and I need to do, and uh, you know, I, I occasionally make an appearance on Give Me Those Star Wars. Uh, you know, or any any time. Anytime Shag uh, Shag finds his way to the Midwest, I usually end up talking to him. So uh, I will be around, and uh, I look forward to you and I talking some more Star Trek in the future. And I'm sure it'll happen. So so I, I tell you goodbye and thank you for your participation today. And uh, up next is uh, what I call incoming transmissions, which is Star Trek news and your listener feedback. Two hundred and twenty-nine different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes, presented across seven comic book issues. A new miniseries as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the Irredeemable Shag is bringing in a ringer, or maybe we should call them flight ringers. Who's who in the Legion of Who's Who in the Legion of Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superheroes in the Legion of Superheroes. The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion. Incoming subspace transmissions. Well, to the Larry Niven question that we asked during the show... I can confirm that Larry Niven turned his known space universe into a shared universe, but only under certain circumstances. You know, there's a number of volumes of the Manzin War book series that came out, which only credit him as creator, uh, full of short stories written by other authors. He opened a 300-year window in the known space timeline for friends to play with. And how this actually plays into the Star Trek universe is anyone's guess at this point, but it's Unlikely anyone working on the canon considers the slaver weapon, which is really an adaptation of Niven's own The Soft Weapon, a proper part of Star Trek's timeline. Some Star Trek news. Star Trek archivists Denise and Michael Okuda have released new Star Trek footage 50 years after the show aired. Uh, they've been working on this one uh, on and off for nine years of the notion that footage might exist in the Roddenberry vault uh, of previously unseen material for which photographic stills existed. And they were right. Uh, they found, for example, Peter Kirk visiting the bridge in Operation Annihilate. They found uh, Lieutenant Palamis pregnant from Apollo uh, at the end of Who Mourns for Adonais. Deleted scenes, alternate takes, bloopers, trims, uh, temporary visual effects... Uh, this was released as the Roddenberry Vault on DVD and Blu-ray mid-December, and it focuses on material from 12 selected episodes, uh, and includes a documentary on the lost material as well. Okay, Star Trek Discovery News. We've gotten a lot of information in the past month. Uh, let's get to it. The show is now likely set in the four-year war between the Federation and the Klingons, which explains the casting call for a Klingon captain will likely be seeing people on both sides of the conflict, not just on the Discovery. Uh, more casting has been announced. Uh, here's how it breaks down. 
the main cast, we've got uh, Saniqua Martin-Green of The Walking Dead playing Rainford, a lieutenant commander uh, on the USS Discovery. She's referred to as number one. The decision to not make the series protagonist a starship captain like previous Star Trek series did was made to see a character from a different perspective on the starship. One who has different dynamic relationships with the captain, with subordinates, and it gives us a richer context, according to the showrunners. The decision to call her number one was made in honor of the character of the same name portrayed by Majel Barrett in the original Star Trek pilot, The Cage. Uh, The character was initially pitched to CBS as only being called number one at all in the series, but she's got a name, it's Rainsford. We also know that Doug Jones will be playing Saru, a science officer serving as lieutenant aboard the Discovery, and Anthony Rapp uh, is Stamets, a science officer specializing in the study of fungi in space. Both have been previously announced. Now, these are main cast characters, but there are recurring characters, and that's where the previously announced Michelle Yeoh character Captain Georgiou of the Shenshu fits. But now we also have a trio of Klingon characters that have been announced as recurring. There's a Shazad Latif, who is Jekyll and Hyde on Petty Dreadful. Uh, he plays Call, the commanding officer of the Klingons, and a protege of another character called Takuvma. Uh, Brit actor Chris Obi is Takuvma, a Klingon leader who is looking to unite the Klingon houses. And then Mary Schieffo is playing Lorel a battle deck commander on the Klingon ship. We're still watching out for that show to come out in May. Uh, and now for some listener feedback. we got some nice comments on iTunes. Uh, first, uh, the Irredeemable Shag, our partner here at Fire & Water, says, Great Trek podcast on a different mission from others. There are tons of Star Trek podcasts out there, and this show recognizes that and tries to look at things a little differently. They pick a specific Trek-related topic for discussion and really find some unexpected details to explore, often insightful, always entertaining, boldly going where many podcasts have gone before, yet still keeping it interesting. Highly recommended. Thanks, Shag. Geekarino says it's a must-listen, says fantastic Trek podcast, eclectic topics that haven't been overdone in the past, uh, a must-listen for lovers of Star Trek. And fascinating, says Earth to Chris. That's Chris Franklin from the network. Says host Siskoid and his Starfleet of guests delve deep, and I mean deep, into all aspects of Star Trek, boldly going where few have gone before, from side characters that deserve more screen time to the roles of religion and philosophy in the 23rd century. No topic is planet forbidden. Now, if we go to fireandwaterpodcast.com, where most of the comments have been left, and there would, there's always some nice discussion, Michael Bailey started listening to the podcast and left a note on episode one, which was about the cage. Uh, where he says, like the Who's Who episode, this one made me want to get off my ass and watch the original series from beginning to end. Siskoid and Gene were fantastic, and even though I haven't seen The Cage, I'm familiar enough with it not to have been lost. More than anything, I enjoyed the passion both of you had for the subject. Gene is always great to hear, and I am in awe of Siskoid's Star Trek knowledge. <laughs> well, I think Gene kind of beats me, I think. He's uh, he's better, or if you will, worse than I am. He says, good job, gentlemen. And then uh, recounts a memory that the podcast sparked about his dad's fandom uh, for Star Trek. So check it out at fireandwaterpodcast.com, where all these discussions are going on. Now turning to the discussion Uh, Dr. G and I had in episode four, we talked about the philosophy of Star Trek, in particular secular humanism, and I have to say I was gratified to get so many comments from Trekkies identifying as humanists, as atheists, and as people of faith, all finding something positive to draw from both Star Trek and the discussion we had. Uh, Here are some excerpts. Uh, Rob Kelly of Film & Water says, This very intelligent, high-minded, articulate discussion makes me recall that my last solo show for the network was mostly about porn. 
uh, where Ryan Daly answers, you and Siskoid each play to your strengths. And then David A. Gutierrez says it was about the human condition in the real world because he participated in that. Rob is being modest. Uh, that episode of Film and Water, which is about the the life of a video store clerk, is is funny. It's insightful. Uh, it's really it's one of the best episodes the network has produced of anything. So you've got to check it out. Uh, Rob also says, as someone who is also not at all religious, I have always wondered what the proof of intelligent life, alien life would do to the world's major religions, since they, as far as I know, base much of their belief systems on the idea that a supreme being created life here on Earth, and that's it. We're special. So what happens when we learn we're not? Gene Hendricks answers, uh, in a way, says, I have a feeling that I'm going to come off as... Uh, I'm going to come at this a little differently than most people, as I am a religious person, but being a, a polytheist... Though, I know that I don't have a corner on capital T Truth. I agree that the world's major religions, at least the strict constructionists, would have a hard time with intelligent alien life, as Rob said. But those of my ilk, however, know that there are, there's more beyond our sphere, so we'd probably be all right with it. One thing that I need to take issue with, at least where the original series is concerned, is the assertion that Star Trek left all non-proven religions behind. The one blatant example of this is in Bread and Circuses, where Uhura states that the Sun cult was actually a, a Sun cult, S-O-N, cult, for the Son of God. The way that line is delivered, it's as if she was stunned that no one had made that connection already, meaning that Uhura was, at the very least, a practicing Christian. And yes, that's the Sun-Sun thing uh, on the Roman planet, and Uhura's comment, that's uh, what I was struggling to remember when I said that TOS did, in fact, name drop the big G. Uh, and I'm sure Kirk did too, perhaps more offhandedly, but uh, it's happened. We could also mention the Hindu religious festival observed on the Enterprise D and Data's Day, for example. Uh, human faiths aren't as dead as the show sometimes makes it out to be uh, from TNG on. You've got alien faiths that are quite alive, whether it be Bajorans, Klingons, and Ferengi, to name the best explored. But human religion is still alive, just never really at the center of things. Gene goes on to say the discussion on whether or not more dis diversity equates to more homogenization was an interesting one. I think that happens if you take it too far. Giving everyone an equal shot doesn't mean that everyone should have equal results. Trying to force it, like Cisco trying to get Jake to go into Starfleet, will result in either rebellion or resentment. The fact that Cisco didn't realize he was doing it is indicative that, even though he's seen so much and has such a diverse group of friends, it's still easy to fall into the trap of, this is how we've always done it. And you should know better, his dad was a cook. Cisco is not from a long line of Starfleet personnel, or Starfleet officers. It's the same with interactions with the Ferengi on DS9. Saying that Quark will always do X because he's a Ferengi is rather blatantly racist. But more people accept it because it's not against the human. It wasn't until Quark challenged Cisco about it that it was brought to light that yes, even supposedly enlightened humans can still be caught in that trap. It's not enough to say, I like Idik. You always have to work at it on a personal level every day to avoid falling backwards. Like choosing to not kill today, you also need to choose not to be prejudiced today. Completely agree. That's exactly what Idik is about. Uh, Michael Bailey, sort of caught up and um, talked about episode four, says it is rare that I get so much out of a podcast. Hmm. One of the biggest differences between Star Wars and Star Trek for me on a personal level is that Star Wars is more about the adventure and the fighting, while Star Trek was always more about the writers and producers exploring philosophical concepts through science fiction. Star Trek certainly has action, and Star Wars does have its share of philosophy. And I enjoy when both properties go down those roads. But when I watch Star Trek, I realize 
I am just as invested in what the movie or the episode is about as, as and how it impacts the characters, whereas I'm more concerned how the characters in Star Wars are going to get out of whatever scrape they're in. This is a generalization. We all know generalizations always bad, but that's how it is most of the time. When I saw this episode was going to explore those philosophies, I got really excited. I like Siskoid, I like Dr. G. It seemed like a lock, and it was, but I didn't realize how much it was going to make me examine my own feelings on the universe around me. Like Siskoid, I was raised Catholic. My confirmed name is Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes, because I felt that was appropriate for me when I was 13. And also like Siskoid, I walked away from that faith. I did not go down the atheist road and remain a pretty hardcore agnostic, though I don't begrudge those that have religious faith, nor do I begrudge those that don't, as long as either side isn't a jackass about it. I listened as Siskoid and Dr. G explained their own beliefs, and I found them compelling, and it made me re-examine my own view of life, the universe, and all that jazz. So thank you for that. You do realize, Mike, that's not something everyone would thank me for. David Ace Gutierrez says, Give me that trick more often, Siskoid. It's a long wait to discovery. I agree, and discovery seems to get further and further away. And if I didn't have other shows to cater to, maybe I could do this one more often. And yet there, there are shows of mine that would... You know, that would really enjoy being at least once a month, like this one is. Uh, we've got uh, Trey Hooks, who brings a different perspective. He says, a fantastic episode. I don't think I've ever listened to one that prompted so much self-examination. I was raised Southern Baptist, then became Methodist. I never found much contradiction between the philosophies of Star Trek and my own faith. Maybe it's because my father, who was deeply religious, encouraged me to find my own way. I was baptized relatively late because he wanted it to be a choice I owned. As I've grown older, I've become more agnostic. Some of that has come from experiencing a more complex life as I grow older and find and finding the moral advice in the Bible as out of date or not capable of covering modern dilemmas. So I've looked to other inspirations to find my way. Some of it is a growing disenfranchisement uh, with churches as establishments and their failings. Some of it is not being willing to discount a god. If I'm open to aliens, angels, demons, etc., it seems illogical for me to rule out a divine being. But logically, if such a being exists, I think it spends little time thinking about or interacting with us, if we are even on its radar. I lost my dad last year to a mysterious respiratory ailment. I can't fathom a divine plan to determine my father was fated to die in that exact fashion. If there is no interference or interaction with a divine being, then while it might exist, it has little impact on me. Maybe God, if it exists, follows the prime directive? Well, first let me say I'm very sorry for your loss, Trey. Uh, sometimes faith gives comfort. Other times it makes one question and doubt. It's part of the paradox, just like the idea of a just God and who nevertheless oversees a lot of suffering. Uh, that's a puzzle each of us must solve independently, and I, I don't believe there's a single solution. Thanks for a point of view from across the perceived divide. Uh, things like these do show that regardless of beliefs, uh, the human experience is universal. You know, I've lost a parent as well in the recent past, and I, and you know, I, you know, I give a lot of credit to Star Trek for giving me my values on this show, but we all know who really deserves it, don't we? Here's some more from Gene Hendricks. Uh, he says something else I've been thinking about because of this episode is how Star Trek and uh, what was shown was instrumental in pushing me towards polytheism. I, like many others, was raised Catholic, but the idea of an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present deity never really sat well with me. Due to how I was raised, not so much from my own parents, but from the church, I was under the impression that you were Catholic or nothing. Stupid, isn't it? But you're right. When you're being raised in a faith, uh, it does feel like that. You don't go to the other churches, and depending on your community, might not be confronted with other faiths. 
And in those pre-internet days, you know, uh, access of information was different. Certainly, as a French Canadian, everybody was Catholic that I knew. Uh, all the churches were Catholic. And there were these small churches for, I think, they probably Anglican in town. But, you know, the few English-speaking people went to that. Uh, as far as being another religion, I'm not sure we understood that. You know, it was just like, well, probably they say mass in English. Uh, in any case, he goes on, he says, since Catholicism didn't work, then I toyed with being an atheist. The, the mental exercise that kept creeping in, though, uh, through Star Trek, as much as anything else, were, if you can believe in incredibly powerful beings like the Metron, Excalibians, or Organians, why can't you take the next step and believe in beings that are actually divine? The, the ultimate answer was that I couldn't. If those beings are possible then other, even more powerful ones, are also. So I finally settled on being a heathen. This makes a heck of a lot, of a lot more sense to me, uh, that the gods are really busy, mainly trying to stab off the end of all things. So asking them to help you get a date just won't fly. Plus, if the Norse gods are out there, then it's equally logical that the Greek, Hindu, or Egyptian gods are as well. That not only makes all religious choices valid, but it also flows from Star Trek, showing us that all of these are possible. Just because Kirk and company didn't worship Apollo as a god doesn't mean that he couldn't fall under the definition. And apparently Star Trek was more responsible for my ultimate religious choice than I originally thought it was. Hmm, a really interesting twist. Uh, Abel Mavada says, Wonderful show, my favorite episode so far. Despite being a Trek fanatic for as long as I can remember, it was only listening to the two of you discuss its philosophical leanings that I realized just how much of an influence Star Trek has had on me personally. I'm a vocal atheist, a secular humanist, more a generalist than a specialist. I'm passionate about both the arts and the sciences, and I've long since been convinced that there is strength and diversity both in individuals and in society at large. In short, I share many traits common among Trekkies. So did Star Trek make all of us who we are? Probably not by itself. But I think Star Trek, in science fiction in general, likely helped to encourage and build the critical thinking skills many of us have used to gain an understanding of the world. Star Trek also showed us a future where, sadly unlike present day, reason and rational behavior win out over superstition and ignorance. And then he says, but most importantly, it taught us all about Kirk Fu, and that makes it just awesome. You know, Abel, there might just be an episode in that. And then from World Spine Podcast, we have Diablo Frank. Uh, he says it, this reminds him of the lame-brained executive that recently proclaimed that the show that's produced many hundreds of, of episodes across numerous long-lived series over generations of viewership doesn't belong on television. I counter that the tepid response to three or four of the past five Star Trek films indicates that the franchise doesn't necessarily work without a television component. This is in large part because two hours every few years isn't enough time to explore the heavier themes and richer perspective of Star Trek. It isn't the good guys versus the bad guys. It's about exploration without and within, which needs room to breathe. The problem isn't Star Trek, but CBS. Because imagine how rich an HBO or Netflix or AMC show could be. That said, people need a gentle Star Trek show like TOS or TNG or even, God help us, irony intended, Voyager, on a widely accessible network in these times of polarization and xenophobia and anti-fact. We need to see people of different stripes working together peacefully towards a greater good and proving this ideology is greater than that one, while also stealthily indoctrinating people through its multicultural, scientific, secular ideology. Well, I don't think I can disagree with that. And finally, the last message on the site uh, comes from MTC, who says, I'm a Christian, and I hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas. And at this point, I might add a Happy New Year. Thank you. And let me just end on the usual Facebook likes and shares. 
uh, Gotham Sharon of the Pulp to Pixels podcast, of course. Uh, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics Blog, Rob Kelly, Mike Gillis, Chris Franklin, Gene Hendricks, Sean Brock, David Foster, Shag Matthews, Sean Ross, Abel Padilla, Daniel Budnick, James Williams, Gord Tolton, Sean Strawbridge, Ryan Daly, Ali Almeida, Michael Skidurlo, David S. Gutierrez, Dale Russell, Ruth Sutherland, Derek William Crabb, and Joe Crawford. On Google+, Plus, we got a plus from Gene Hendricks. And on Twitter, retweets and favorites from Coffee and Comics Blog, who says, This is what happens when you let intelligent people watch a show that rewards intelligence. Now be smart and listen to the smart folks. Uh, Disco Beyonder, Dr. Geniardologist, Rich Grimmel, Comic Reflections, Keith G. Baker, Treasury Comics, Longbox Crusade, Glenn Walker, Ryan Daly, Justice's First Dawn, Between the Pages, Sakura Fields, Film and Water Podcast, and Crazed Wingnut. Thanks for all the comments, and if you'd like to leave comments about this episode and your love or unlove <laughs> of the animated series, uh, please go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and leave us a little something. You can also interact with us on uh, Facebook at the Fire and Water Facebook page. And if you're going to leave a tweet, please use the hashtag FWPodcast. That's it for us, and until next time, go boldly. I listened to commented once. He's uh, he's Canadian, but he's uh, an English-speaking Canadian. Uh, but he mentioned that uh, he was so desperate for superheroes as a child, he would sometimes switch over to the French language channel to watch uh, Le Hulk Incroyable, uh, just to get some more superheroes in. So I thought that was funny. Anyway, you can erase all that. Um, <laughs> but will I? So, <laughs> but will you? Behold, gentlemen, the dawning of a new era. Spark. 